Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Claudio Cantu from Linköping University on the show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You obtained your PhD from the University of Milano, and in 2011 you joined the Developmental Genetics Lab of Professor Dr. Konrad Basler at the University of Zurich, Switzerland, for a postdoc. Then in February 2018 you moved from Switzerland to Sweden, where you started your own research group, and you are still there today as a senior associate professor. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? All right. I'm glad I received this question as a uh, first one. Um, like, I would wonder how someone could not be interested in biology in a way. And, uh, well, I think that I was interested in biology as a child, uh, primarily, and this thing never went away. And then as a child, your tip, I was typically interested in uh, dinosaurs and sharks, But then something happened at the, when I was uh, 19, 20, and I, uh, and I studied genetics at the university. Um, um, when we were studying the experiments in, like the genetics experiment in Drosophila melanogastera at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, from Thomas Hunt Morgan and uh, his young students. And I... Somehow, in that moment, I, th I, I think I switched my interest to the kind of green biology, biology of animals, to molecular biology and genetics. Um, and I think that uh, um, what most fascinated me was that uh, um, we could understand um, we could not we could understand in details um, things that are extremely complicated, but we which we cannot see. We cannot even see in principle like DNA as a, uh, um, as a size that is smaller than the wavelength of light, but yet we understand how it, its structure and how it works. And this was just, this was just, I think, amazing. So in that moment, I think that I wanted to study like marine biology or ecology, but then I switched immediately to interest in genetics and molecular biology. And this never went away. Coming to a science that centers around the mechanisms via which cells influence each other's uh, genomes during development, um, which is very broad. And this ep episode might be a little bit different than others because I hope we can have an open discussion and I want to get your opinion on a topic that might be interesting to many. Um, currently, there are two papers on BioArchiv and this is uh, also how I became aware of you and your work and wanted to invite you to this podcast with the title um, The Cut and Run Blacklist of Problematic Re Regions of the Genome and um, Exhaustive Identification of Genome-Wide Binding Events of Transcriptional Regulators with Iceberg. So let's dive into it. <laughs> But let's start uh, with your work, Optimizing Cut and Run, run and calling this Cut and Run Love You. Um, can you talk about your motivation or the need to modify the original cut-and-run approach and what advantage this method brought in for you? Yeah, yeah. Um, this is a, a very interesting for me, at least. So when I was a postdoc at the University of Zurich in the lab of uh, Connie Basler, something that I... So I was working on, on mechanisms downstream of uh, wind signaling. So I, I wanted to look at what are the genes that beta-catenin, the sort of the fulcrum of wind signaling, regulates directly. And then I was uh, um, doing ChIP-seq on, on beta-catenin. So ChIP-seq, like the gold standard technology to look at transcription factor uh, binding genome-wide. Um, the problem is that beta-catenin maybe has a very dynamic way of action or it doesn't directly bind the DNA or for some reason it was very difficult to detect with ChIP-seq. And then I spent basically two years of my life as a postdoc to have to kind of use information from other people who were successful with this and try to adapt a chipsick protocol and profile beta-catenin binding from in vivo tissues in, in the mouse. And then we were successful um, to some extent in the sense that we got data sets which were good, 
quite noisy, but sort of also the reviewers accepted them because everyone knew that it was a very difficult target to. Uh, so, what were the factors that you that you um, that you optimized? Is it the fixative, the fixation time, or what did you did you change? Yeah, so there was a lot of um, choice of antibodies, um, um, choice of antibodies, and the, the um, I think that the trick that made it work, the tricks that made it work, had to do with the amount of cells and with the cross-linking um, quality and quantity. Uh, and for this, I was inspired by a paper uh, from the Hans Klevers uh, group. Um, and then what really worked was the combination of two uh, chemical cross-linkers. One gets usually done, usually uh, use this formaldehyde, which cross-links everything with everything, and adding another one, which is specific protein-to-protein cross-linker. And this very likely made the experiment working because then beta-catenin doesn't bind directly DNA, it relies on other transcription factors uh, to do so. So then we were cross-linking beta-catenin to those proteins that then in turn bind DNA and which are cross-linked likely via formaldehyde. The other one is the trick that everyone knows in the chip-seq world, which is using as many cells as you as you could, um, which however was also a problem because my I aimed at working in vivo using mouse embryos. And then what me and Dario Zimmerli, a PhD student at the time at the University of Zurich, were doing this was it was an hecatomb. We had to sacrifice a lot of a lot of uh, uh, pregnant female and sacrifice um, many hundreds of embryos to do a single experiment. And this also, of course, poses like the ethical dilemma. It's like, is it worth it? Um, so from there, then I I moved in 2018 and I uh, set up my lab at the University of Linköping in Sweden. And I wanted to have some sort of a chipsick centered lab. The reason for this is because it, 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 I think it's a primarily um, kind of an interest and passion-driven choice in, in the sense that I really like to see the gene regulation events at the interface between the regulators, which are the transcription factors, the chromatin regulators, and, and, the, and the DNA, the genome. Um, And I also think that experiments like ChipSeq or Cateran now allows you to have the highest resolution of what we define being a molecular mechanism, which is always this vague concept that journals and editors and reviewers want, they want from you. Um, so, so basically at that time, I wanted to establish a ChipSeq-based projects. And then the, I've read the Hennikoff paper in eLife about establishing the Caterran. And I thought about this, this sort of dual advantage that the Caterran has, which is it doesn't require cross-linking. And you can, you can have a chipsick-like profile, but with very small number of cells. And I thought I need to change immediately. It was not an easy choice for me because at that time I had already invested quite some money. For example, I paid $50,000 of my initial grant to buy a Covaris ultrasonicator, which is a great instrument required for cheap. And the choice would make this instrument almost obsolete. Uh, but then I thought it might have been a winning choice. And I think it has been a winning choice. The problem was that I suffered to tune ChipSeq for beta-catenin. And then when I was working with my initial co-workers, like, for example, uh, Matthias Pernebrink, who is now at the university, is, is at the Institute of Molecular Pathology in, in Vienna, um, we couldn't make Cateran work on beta-catenin. So I thought that my former investment and my current investment of moving from Chipsic to Cateran was the wrong one. When you, when you do like massive cross-linking and you... Uh, and this made it work, right? And then you move to a method that omits the cross-linking. I mean, uh, it could be difficult, right? <laughs> yeah, it could be difficult. Yeah, maybe with hindsight, it was probably obvious. So, and uh, um, I don't know what are the reasons why we insisted rather than um, going simply back to ship. Um, 
maybe a little bit of serendipity, maybe also the persistence of the person who was working with me at the time, um, Mattias, and then Gianluca Zambanini, a fantastic student from uh, Italy. So they were persistent and they 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 found ways to make Caterran work for beta catenin. And then we have we kind of established this uh, slightly modified protocol. And what I liked about their work was that uh, um, they really thought through the reasons why the experiment targeting beta-catenin was not working. And they tested those hypotheses until they found the one which presumably was the uh, culprit uh, cause of why targeting beta-catenin with Cataran um, uh, did not really work. What was the key effect that made it work ultimately? Because I think what this is like... The, the problem with some of the transcription factors that are not working in cut and run and cut and tag is uh, might might be the reason why butter catenin then worked in cut and run yeah yeah exactly so um let's say that we had a few hypotheses of why beta catenin could not work my original idea was that beta catenin being relatively distant from dna as it doesn't bind it directly um would not allow micrococcal nuclease that using cataran to cut Oh, because uh, it's too far. DNA. Because it's too far away. It could be. I thought it could be too far away. The uh, PA MNA doesn't reach DNA when it's uh, directed to beta catenin. For example, we try to solve this by using primary and secondary antibodies. We thought we extend the reach of PA MNAs, and this never really gave us good uh, results. What ultimately um, could give results, of course, was using nuclear extraction because beta-catenin goes into nucleus, but there is quite some beta-catenin, of course, on the membrane and then the cytoplasm. And we thought this titrates away, binds the D and sequesters the, the antibody. But uh, I think that the, 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 the main uh, leap forward to positive results was when we started doing in situ denaturation of proteins. So at the end, of the cataran procedure when you are meant to elute your dna fragments before you do primary um, library preparation for next generation sequencing we um worked under the assumption that maybe beta catenin is in the relatively big transcriptional complex and the dna might be cut left and right to the transcription factor or the trans transcriptional complex but it's somehow trapped into the protein complex. So we started giving urea to this step in the reaction. And this, as a matter of fact, resulted in a huge yield of bigger DNA fragment, um, big, bigger DNA fragments that were released. And when we're collecting them, they would map to the binding profile of beta-catenin, which we knew already, of course, uh, from, for example, ChIP-seq experiments that we have done. So this allowed us to identify that basically if you do in situ protein denaturation, it, it really looked like that those big protein complexes trap some DNA. So some DNA remain like stuck within those, um, and then you can release them by simply denaturating the complex. So this now is now our yeah, favorite okay. explanation of so why it's not the experiment that, that... then worked. The primary antibody in the MNAs would not cut or be uh, or would not go there where the pre uh, protein is binding, but that the complex after digestion would not release the DNA that you ultimately cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah this okay. is what we now think was the okay. case because it was urea who gave really this mm -hmm. leap of release in DNA fragments. Interesting. And uh, of course, we could also measure the that the size of the fragment released with urea with urea is typically larger, mm -hmm. and this sort of make sort of gives an intuitive sense that this might be the case, that there are, those are more likely re, um, remaining trapped mm -hmm. into uh, uh, protein complexes and, and so on. Mm -hmm. So the ENCODE project and also others have compiled a blacklist for ChIP-seq, which uh, have been widely adopted. Um, these lists uh, contain regions of high and unstructured signal, regardless of cell types or protein target. And you set out to do the same for cut and run. So what was the initial situation you found yourself in when starting with this? Um, yeah, of course, we have been using 
um, every time we do a Catalan experiment, then we have been using the previous uh, blacklist. Um, so for chip? That is used for chip because mm -hmm. the reasoning is that the, um, those regions, um, the regions that are present in a blacklist have uh, an obscure origin in the sense that many are recognizable as uh, regions of the genome that are difficult to be mapped in principle because they are highly repetitive and they can be subject, for example, to uh, also mapping artifacts. So you can have a, a few duplicated regions or repetitive regions and then many of the um, amplified fragments in your sequencing library map there maybe as an artifact and so on. And then you what you see, as a matter of fact, is a signal that looks like a peak. Uh, but then you would see this signal also when you do a non-antibody experiment or an IgG control or a non-related antibody targeting something that is not related to your um, um, biological hypothesis. You would see signal there. So then very wisely, I believe that someone had the idea to compile a list of regions that it's good to discard because they show signal as again um it, the, the chipsic blacklist might have included uh, many types of artifacts uh, that are mapping artifact that as i suggested before but they could also have been uh, for example cross-linking artifacts we cannot exclude that when you apply cross-linking there are maybe big protein complexes uh, somewhere in the genome that have nothing to do with the protein that you're trying to pull down, yet they get cross-linked and for some chemical reason they get they are preferentially or they are um, enriched also in your pull-down. So you find signal there. So many are the reasons why you get spurious signal and they were very wise in compiling this ChIP-seq uh, blacklist. And we have used those dataset to subtract it from our datasets. But then we realized that, uh, so then we have many projects in the lab that essentially are Caterran centered. And we realized that uh, um, many of those regions uh, that are spurious signal and identified in ChIP-seq blacklist are also appearing in the Caterran experiment. So we thought it's wise to remove them. But then in particular, Anna Nordin, now she's a PhD student in my lab, uh, she realized that there were other regions that appeared often in our Caterran experiments, but they were not included in a Caterran, in, sorry, in a ChIP-seq encode blacklist. So I have to admit entirely on her, on her initiative, she compiled a list and she proposed this project to me of course i was very enthusiastic because of the importance of the project i mean we all need to rely on the good tool made by encode which however for cateran it's not complete because cateran identifies uh, new regions that are also found when we use an igg uh, sort of pre-moon serum like a mixture of unrelated antibody as a control so we thought it's important to tell the community um, that those regions are should so, raise suspicion at least. So, to your knowledge, are you the first and the only one working on such a blacklist? No, I know that there are persons who might have been looking at compiling other blacklists, and in fact, the, the bioarchive paper was now cited by an, another group who I think has similar goals. Um, but to I, I, yeah, I believe that we we were the only one trying to build the Caterran uh, specific uh, blacklist. Um, yeah, to my knowledge, th this is this is uh, this is the case. Uh, of course, we are we are trying to be in contact with the Caterran community, and I hope that uh, they find our work useful and to combine to build the Caterran blacklist. Which we now are, are considering changing the name, also upon suggestion of the editor, upon in which the the paper now the bioarchive article is now in a revision, is to change the name from blacklist to suspect list. Also based on the rationale, which I somehow like, actually not somehow, very much like the rationale that our our 
um, regions that display signal also when you use IgG antibodies. It's difficult to conclude that they are wrong signal. For example, some of those end up in promoter in promoters. And we cannot, and even if we use no antibody or IgG, so there is a problem in those regions. But we should warn other users that they might be the scientists working on the trying to target the factor which maybe regulates those promoters. So people should should take also all the all the blacklists with caution because we cannot exclude that any region of the genome it is actually regulated by some uh, rare factor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the story of the of of our work and it's still we still use it now we have, after the after having compiled this we have done literally hundreds of cataran and we always use this tool which is made up by so we have done like a reiterative experiment with IgG control but we have compiled of course the blacklist using dataset from others we don't want to bias our blacklist with our own hands and experience so yeah, this was to see. because you many questions I, I wrote down you already kind of touched upon but um so how, how was the, the the technical approach you took so you took like data sets from your own lab and then also from other labs and you kind of uh, bioinformatically compiled them together and make kind of an average of all the peaks that might come up in all of them yeah yeah precise this was precisely what we have done in a in a nutshell um, so originally like historically in the lab we have had done several igg controls and we started the compiling blacklist using those and we noticed that if we if we would take 20 igg controls that we have done and looked at all the peaks that are called let's say for example in a majority of the experiments uh, then we would have a list of suspect regions that appeared in our, our own experiments. And if we used, and then let's say call our the our lab blacklist. And if when we apply this to other datasets, we could see that they those datasets were improved in the sense that most of the dataset also included those signals, which then, of course, we always rely on the fact that of on the fact of specificity so we trust the the peculiarity of our discovery when that signal is not found in the control so in the very moment in which we notice that in across the board of our experiments targeting our favorite transcription factors the signal that we had identified in the the blacklist that we had compiled was present then we felt the urge of excluding it You know, this might be genuine good signal, but because it appears also in the control, it's safer to exclude it. So we want to uh, remove false positives. And on the false positive concept, there might be a twist if we if we are curious to talk about the iceberg. Um, yeah, the, yeah, that, that's that's uh, later down the road. I also wanted to get in how does the Caterham black blacklist compare to the ENCODE blacklist? So is there something that come up that is may maybe interesting? Or is it just like uh, a list of peaks that that does not tell anything more interesting than just using it? Yeah, um, this is like I would have to go in the um, wild world of speculations here because uh, um, there are so there are peaks overlapping with the ENCODE blacklist, but not all of them. So the Cataran blacklist doesn't identify some of the um, encode blacklist and the the Cataran blacklist is is smaller so it's a okay. set mm -hmm. of uh, of uh, a, a, a smaller set of peaks um and many are in regions that are obviously when you look at the sequence and you're in a centromere and then sequence there are a lot of repetitive regions and there are a lot of peaks there that appear across our AGG uh, experiments and across the control experiments of the um, others, other published um, data sets from, from um, independent laboratories. Um, and those sequences don't tell me much, but of course me is a person with limited 
uh, um, um, ability to see through DNA sequencing and regulatory regions. Um, some of those regions, as I said, I believe we have, for example, one um, blacklist or suspect list peak in the GSK3 uh, promoter, which is, of course, a very important gene. And then we get this peak across our experiments, and we have to exclude it because it's present in the in the in the blacklist. However, we wish to warn, like caution, in the sense that. Someone is bound to identify a factor which regulates GSK3, which is a gene that must be must be regulated on the on the promoter by uh, transcriptional regulators. So also those. So this is why I, I I favor also the change of name from blacklist to suspect list, because I think that scientists also have to use those lists with cum grano salis, like a little bit of caution mm. and look at those instances individually in in each of your experiment. Yeah, I mean it would be. Interesting to see if if there is a regulation at the promoter. Does this blacklist peak change indeed? Right. I mean, if it's still the same after there is indeed a regulation, but it still shows up, it might be uh, dangerous for the interpretation of this uh, specific yeah. experiment. Then, yeah, of course, of course. And the other aspect, maybe that um, to follow up your question about what we learn about on those blacklists, is that this also upon a. I think a very genuinely good suggestion from a reviewer. We have looked at, and then we so this will be published in another version of the uh, paper. We have looked at the motives um, that are the transcription factor binding motives of, of the regions that we identified in the blacklist. And there is quite a lot of things going on. So you can think, for example, we identify CTCF motives, and then you can think. Well, are we? Uh, is it CTCF binding that produces spurious signal and so on? It doesn't look like the case when we, for example, overlap the blacklist with the our CTCF binding profile, and also when we looked at. So we have done the same analysis of motive search in the ENCODE blacklist, and also there we identify quite a lot, quite a lot of transcription factor binding signatures. But I don't think that we can learn much from this um, for the reason that uh, motifs are degenerate DNA sequences. So a motif could be a bad motif and does not really allow stringent binding of transcription factors. And also motifs are short DNA sequencing. So if, if you the more you expand the pool of the DNA sequencing you look for, you are, you are um, screening, the higher the chance of by, of identifying, identifying by mere luck um, um, some motives. So I don't think that you necessarily learn something from those. The ultimate test would be the, uh, is that region actually bound? by that transcription factor with that motive and then we need to do a chip seek or a cataran yeah. so nick um, no sorry to, to to conclude this this section um can you say something and and if you can't that's perfectly fine when uh, this will be uh, peer-reviewed and published uh, because now it's on bioarchive but when this will be listened to in like a year from now then uh, yeah it may may be out somewhere yeah yeah it will be out uh, um so it was uh, um, I believe I can say this now. So ac accepted as a, an article, and it will be published. I think in a, in a, in a, ma a time frame of a month or something okay. like this. And we've included all the peer review, and mostly it was, a, mm -hmm. I would have to say, uh, great suggestions. And uh, okay. and then we were happy to have also. This is a case in which, uh, you know, when I grew up, also as a postdoc, I started being a little bit. Uh, against the peer review system. They are just simply denying me to publish uh, quickly my papers, which are correct. And then, of course, in many instances, I had to revise my opinion on it. And this is one of those cases in the sense that uh, I grew up as a molecular biologist and a developmental biologist. And those projects, which are almost entirely computational, we, so like, Anna, who is the leading author on this and uh, working in my lab and myself, really wanted 
expert opinion on this. I mean, just please help us to understand if you're doing something wrong. And the very fact that, uh, let's say at least two reviewers out of three took the project um, with enthusiasm, then this this made us also happy and like more mm -hmm. uh, anxious <laughs> in going ahead with the application. So next to this Blacklist project, uh, another question that might come up or has come up in the one or the other experiment is how many peaks are overlapping with GPSeq experiments and how is the overlap of peaks in biological replicates in cut and run? Um, to solve this, uh, you developed Iceberg and this stands for increased capture of enrichment by exhaustive replicate aggregation. An experimental and computational, again, a procedure that utilizes numerous cut and run replicates to discover the entire set of binding events and consistently exclude false positives. Um, so maybe to start off, a really easy question. When is a peak really a peak? Yeah, uh, this is this is a million dollar question whose answer, in my opinion, is no one knows. Um, no one really knows. And what we have to do, and the reason why I say this is because um, the peak is identification of um signal in a in a in a specific genomic coordinates um, now as it turns out in for example when you do chip in chip you are purifying cross-linked genomes and then you hope that via immunoprecipitation you are enriching for those dna regions that are bound by your transcription factor uh, Enrichment precisely means that there will be a ratio between the signal in that position and the left and right um, so adjacent the, sites. The most famous signal-to-noise ratio, right? <laughs> exactly. This is the signal-to-noise ratio, which you need. It, this needs to be higher than one in the sense that, that if the signal-to-noise ratio is one in that position, in that position you your signal is equivalent to background, so you cannot draw any conclusion. Uh, so is the signal-to-noise ratio 1.1, 1.2, 1.8, 2.5? Where is the number where we trust it as a signal, as long as it is reproducible? Uh, this is a genuinely difficult question that pertains to the signal detection theory, of which I cannot say more in terms of math, but I only have an, an intuitive understanding of it. It's a problem of detecting anything, even if you are um, driving, a, a piloting a plane and you have a radar and you spot a signal. This might be another uh, um, uh, um, uh, fighter jet trying to bombard us, or maybe it's a flock of birds. And then you need to distinguish these two signals. And this is a genuine problem in all uh, fields of human enterprise, where we need to detect something that is not something else. I mean, it's a problem then, of measurement, right? It's a problem of measurement, exactly. So how people deal with this in 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 ChIPSIC, it's the I think it's still the best way is by is two ways. One, statistics. We use statistics to impose thresholds, and then you can imagine this is a line just above the signal in a line just above the signal across the entire genome in a ChIPSIC or Caterham experiment. Signal that goes above, we call this is a peak. Signal that goes below, we call this is not a peak. That's a great method. The other method is the replication. We do the experiment again and again, and then uh, we say the peak in that position happened again, so I trust it. And of course, those are the two methods on which everyone is relying, and I have been relying, and people should be relying uh, also now, I think. On the other hand, there are there are problems. Like, if you become somehow a, a, an inverted comma, an expert in Chipsic or Caterani, in the sense that you are used to, to walk through the genome and scroll the genome to see this is a peak, this is not a peak, you sometimes recognize this is genuinely a peak because of its shape. It really looks like a Chipsic peak where, you know, there is a peak summit and this is the obvious result of the biological procedure when a transcription factor in the position that is close to the peak summit is binding, then this looks like a genuinely good peak. Other peaks are obviously 
not good because, for example, they are big squares, like tall squares, and they are obviously the result of PCR amplification of this um, um, library species of DNA. Um, but then often what you see is that, come on, that's really a great peak. It's called the cross replicates, but it's always a little bit below the threshold. So you don't call it. Um, this is this is a common problem that uh, um, that everyone I think in the field knows, and you have to exclude it. But we are okay in excluding it because what we also we write in the paper. So scientists don't like being wrong. So if you have a positive signal, but we are not entirely sure, you just exclude it. You you are okay to have false negatives. So that's a negative, but it could actually be a positive, but it's okay to call it as a negative. What you don't want is false positive because false positive means I go around on the street, publish my, my paper, but then I turn out to be wrong. So we don't like that. And there is this sort of unwritten rule or common wisdom across scientists that we are okay with the false negatives, but not okay with false positives. But then we started thinking that, like, if if you, if I if I am a patient and I go and I have a pain here in my stomach and I go to a doctor, I would rather pay the cost of a false positive, in the sense that if I have a disease but the doctor doesn't diagnose it, this is a false negative. Um, then. I end up having a bad disease that is not diagnosed and I don't know it until it's too late. While if I have, a, if I, I'm okay to risk a false positive. So like increase the detection rate of your tool because then I will pay the cost of a second opinion or a second analysis to make sure. So the replication, I would want to rely on the replication rather than the fact that my disease is not, not uh, detected. So I, we were wondering whether this pref strict preference for false negatives over false positive is a, an idiosyncrasy of molecular biologists. I mean, we work in now in, in, in this field where this is the case, but it, is this a right attitude in all fields of human knowledge? Of course, we don't know the answer to this, but we sort of provocatively say, shall we try to be daring a little bit and maybe welcome some more signal and find another way to detect whether the signal is genuinely good or not. In other words, we are okay to exclude peaks on which we are not sure, but we know that we uh, identify enough, what... You worked hard enough to say that that it's not a peak because you did some other controls. You did other controls, but sometimes you are left honestly with a doubt and you have big data sets that you need to exclude because they are within the set of unreplicability. If you imagine it, Venn diagram, simple Venn diagram with the two sets, the intersection set is what you trust. The two non-intersecting sets is what you say, I don't trust those. But those sets are often big and this made us think that the intersection set, which is the, our discovery that we trust, might represent the tip of the iceberg of the biologically relevant events. Um, and then we thought, well, I want to discover the beta-catenin binding profile, not the tip of the iceberg of beta-catenin binding, but I want to discover all the binding profiles of beta-catenin. How do we do that? And then we thought that we should try to see what we say we can say from these two big non-overlapping sets. And then we improved replicability and computation by the designing this uh, iceberg, which was essentially designed by, again, Anna Nordin, the person who compiled the blacklist, and also uh, Pier Francesco Pacella is a senior uh, scientist in the lab, and Gianluca Zambanini, who is the original author of the Cateran Love You protocol. By the way, Love You was a was a real acronym. It stands for low volume and urea. It's not a, only if, 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 uh, fun things. So the term you coined here was peak concordance. Um, and if you compare the 
so what does it exactly mean um, and how does this compare then between like again cut and run and chip seek yeah uh, uh, i'm actually happy you asked that um, because uh, um, while writing the uh, article um, we which we wrote as a team effort the article entirely um, we were writing of course um, overlap or reproducible peaks but from a almost philosophical point of view defining what is reproducible is precisely the problem we were trying to address so we thought of using a new term to address the overlap and we we agreed on concordance which is it's somehow a neutral term that can define the outcome of our technology uh, that uh, spots events um, more than once across different replicates. And the, the different replicates are concordant to the extent to which they reproduce um, those events. So we thought that concordant can become a clearer way to define this identification of peaks that are reproduced in those experimental instances, which doesn't necessarily imply reproducibility, because reproducibility for us often is a synonym of reality, a synonym of that is what our real discovery is. While the concordance could also be due to technical issues, if we don't subtract the blacklist or subs or suspect list those peaks will be concordant but not because they represent biological events they are the result of technical artifacts most likely yeah. so how is then the how did, did you approach that i mean there is this one issue that you have a high peak concordance in cut and run and a high peak concordance between cut and run and for example chip seek right so uh, How is this um, reflected? Or how did you see that? Yeah, so the um, it's difficult for me to compare Chipsik and Caterran uh, in the sense that we didn't do this analysis thoroughly. Uh, what I can say is that historically I was doing Chipsik and the maximum number of replicates I have done for a study for a transcription factor is three. And I had always noticed that the overlap across replicates is relatively low. Like and with the low, I mean, with the factors such as beta-catenin, as my favorite protein for a number of years, it can be 10 or 20%. Now, why you do one experiment and you get 5,000 peaks, and then you another day you do again the same experiment and you get 5,000 peaks, But of these 5,000 on the left and 5,000 on the right, only 1,000 are in common. The reason why this happened has never been clear to me. But then, of course, I was bound to just trust the overlap. And what I would typically choose to do is describe the figure and say, this is the result, 5,000, 5,000, but I trust the high confidence 1,000 peak that overlap. Um, When we were doing Caterran, the problem was similar and to it quantitatively to it on a similar scale. Um, now, so we had 5,000 peaks of Caterran, 5,000 peaks of Caterran in the second replicate, only 1,000 more or less would, would, would overlap. I'm talking again about beta-catenin or some difficult targets, because when we target, for example, is something that we show in the iceberg uh, study, when you target chromatin, Uh, marks like post-translational post modification of histones or other very stable transcription factors, the overlap is much higher. It's never 100%, but it's much higher. But then the overlap also with Caterran when targeting difficult targets like beta-catenin is typically low. What I don't know and what I meant at the beginning of your my answer was the non-overlapping targets in CHIP-seq. I don't know how overlapping are those to the non-overlapping targets of Cataran. This is what we didn't um, didn't find. We didn't, didn't, didn't look at uh, thoroughly. But the reason why we didn't look at thoroughly this is because there is no iceberg equivalent, to my knowledge, of CHIP-seq. Yeah. 
which is what which is what we would need to compare the two technologies so how many replicates would you then need to confidently say well this is a peak for let's not say maybe histone modifications because you just said that those might be better or more stable or more more often called in different replicates but if you look at a transcription factor let's say beta catenin how many replicates be it technical or biological um, how much is enough so i we, we don't have a definitive answer on this but what we could clearly um show is that by doing a reiterative replication of your experiment and this was shown um, mathematically by Pier Francesco Pagella in the lab um, that basically uh, the the discovery curve at some point plateaus when you go with in the case of beta catenin when you go over and we have evidence for at least another factor that this is the case Uh, when you, you go, when you approach the 20 replicates and you go over 20 replicates, for each additional replicate, the discovery rate becomes quite low. So Francesco was calculating the derivative of the curve, which approaches zero at the end. And this shows that you have plateaued your discovery, which in our metaphor, we have seen the entire iceberg. Only having this tool allowed us to benchmark sort of the full discovery rate, the iceberg, the full discovery set, with what you would discover if you were if you were to do only two, one, two, or three replicates. And in, in the article, we provide an entire figure for this analysis because we think that, first of all, we, Caterani, it's a relatively expensive and demanding experiment. We don't, we, I think that it's reasonable to expect that people would want to ex replicate their experiment twice or three times. And then what do you what do you get with that? So you get part of the iceberg, not the entire iceberg. I think that's entirely okay. You discover the most important regulation events or, or maybe the most common ones across the cell population that you are investigating and so on. And for example, what we have seen that What we've seen is that when you target beta catenin, if you do one replicate or two replicates, um, your discovery rate could be relatively good, depending also on the peak calling that you, the peak calling strategy that you design. Uh, so we looked this in terms of recall and precision, where recall is the number of peaks that belong to the iceberg peaks that you actually identify. So the number of real positive across the total number of uh, uh, positives. And the precision is the number of how precise is your data set is, which means across the all number of peaks that you identified, how many are real positive? And then this, this really allows you to, to chart the line mm -hmm. between false positive and false negatives. So we have seen that, of course, there is always a trade-off between precision and recall. And regardless of the um, um, statistical test that you use, you favor one or the other. But, you know, if, if you look at the figure in, in the paper, you can see that uh, even it's if figure, you do one experiment two or two or experiment... It's figure two, right? Is It is figure four, the one oh, to okay. I refer. Okay. And in those charts, we see that... Uh, The chart, you know, this is a very simple uh, chart. Admittedly, we uh, were jokingly inspired by um, the presentation of the first iPhone by Steve Jobs <laughs> when it made the chart about the smartphone existing and iPhone is right on top, on the uh, um, right top part of the chart. And in the same, this is true for the iceberg. So the iceberg is the top right part of the chart with perfect precision and perfect recall i'm so sorry to interrupt you sorry to interrupt you but could you just give a, a short summary about iceberg because we didn't touch on on, on how it works yeah yeah uh, you're right so basically what iceberg is is a a combination of experimentation and computation where we did reiterative replicates and we did 25 uh, for example 25 replicates of Caterran for beta-catenin, 
and then we uh, for each replicate we we selected a random uh, um, at random reads for, for each replicate and put them all in one bag such that to build a, a, a big um, individual replicate essentially that includes information from all the experiments and the reason for the rationale behind this was that the uh, spurious signal which could be due to random uh, effects of mapping or purification of specific DNA fragments would be averaged out if you sum that coming from a large number of experiments such that your background becomes a more flat uh, line across the genome while the small signal even if it's small and typically falls below the threshold of detectability in individual replicates if it's real it might be summed and accumulated such that it would go be above the threshold of typical uh, peak calling statistics and we might identify it and this actually is what does happen and we also try to explain the iceberg logic in a in a drawing and i think that this is really the case that uh, um the background became a a a tamer background in the sense that we can really understand it better because it's more flat while the real signal appeared because this was the result of summing up all the small signals present in individual in, in some but not in all individual replicates and then basically this allowed us to have to discover several peaks that were called maybe in a very small number of replicates for example we do 25 replicates. Um, if a peak is present in 25 out of 25, that's an easy choice. We like it. If it's present in 20 out of 25, kind of we like it. It's like four-fifth four of our experiments display that signal. This is quite a high um, chance. But then if you start looking at numbers of the signally present in 10 out of 25 experiments. Do you trust this? This is a minority of experiment, but still, Caterani is a highly controlled experiment. You can detect that each experiment worked. And then this signal is present in 10 times. 10 times is a high number, typically. No one does Cateran 10 times. <laughs> and then, so we thought that we should trust those, and we should also trust signal that maybe appeared in even a smaller number of replicates. And we started thinking that maybe the frequency of signal detection across replicates might simply underlie the probability of that factor to be identified there. And I think that this is an important concept because it's something that people say in the chip-seek field for 20 years now, uh, which is the peak is bigger when the binding event occurs in a big portion of the population that you are uh, on which you are doing the experiment. Yeah, if if for example it's possible that cells are heterogeneous, if a transcription factor is binding on promoter of gene X only on ten percent of the cells that you are purifying then the peak will be smaller. These people have this feel since 20 years. And I think that with Iceberg, we capture this probability that could be reflective either of the fraction of cells in which the regulation event occurs, or it could be reflective of the time that the transcription factor or regulator spends on the, on, on the binding there. And of course, we don't know what, the, what the, of these two possibilities, but I think it's a only my opinion is a beautiful hypothesis that the bands like screams for, for uh, future investigation. I mean, having like uh, looking at the first point you just raised, um, so with so it's only single cells that might have this factor bound at a given time in this experiment, and then a single cell experiment would obviously be the the right experiment to do it then, right? Um, yes, of course. Um, 
it is of course the the single cell approaches are i believe the future and i hope um that we don't have to wait too long um now there are approaches to do in particular to apply cut and tag to single cells and they've shown to be reliable from um from and and yeah i mean you're you're entirely right that this would be the the the, the ultimate approach um of course uh, when you look at single cell approaches if you look at attack sequencing or cut and tag on single cells and if you have one cell then you have per each cell in that specific chromosomal position um this becomes a digital problem in the sense that either you have signal or you not or you have your two alleles so you might have zero signal signal one or signal two because you detect the binding on one or two alleles or zero and i think a challenge in the future will be also to address what does reproducibility mean there because when you are relying on digital events to call out cell identity so this cell the blue cell is different than the red cell because it presents this digital event then you have a problem of reproducibility because then because we want to make sure that something is true if that event occurs again while here conceptually we are distinguishing two cells because of an event that is individual for that cell so when the events are digital i think it's it's going to be of course not impossible but more difficult to distinguish a real biological idiosyncrasy defining cell identity um yeah i mean then other factors might, signal. Yeah, might come into play like a cell cycle and, and other things right uh, why is the specter yeah. here yeah. why isn't why isn't it here right so yeah but but the, of course uh, of of course the singles the point that you raised uh, there is no better answer than saying you're right <laughs> i also look forward that the people who are working hard on this will develop the the the, the technology that allow us to detect to do a, a single cell iceberg mm. um, for example so just to finish off this this part um what would you say how many biological replicates are enough how much or how many should a researcher be doing yeah yeah so I mean, nobody can do 25 as you did, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, well, people could do 25 in the sense that if, of course, not everyone maybe could afford doing experiments, but if you consider the sequencing costs and now the also reduced the cost of library preparation for next generation sequencing, um, now we are in the lab, we are often confronted with the choice. Should we do cut and run QPCR or should, should we just sequence? And then we decide to sequence because the gain of doing cut and run QPCR is not really substantial. I mean, if we do a full plate of uh, cyber green based QPCR, we pay more than the contribution of those few samples within a sequencing lane. So we would rather wait, accumulate samples enough, and then include them in a sequencing, because their relative contribution is lower than the cyber green plate. And of course, but then you have to add the costs of antibodies. I mean, of course, this is expensive stuff, but also if you want to do a staining on like, immunohistochemistry or immunofluorescence on a um, um tissue section then you need to buy an antibody which costs 500 yeah, but, but also the, the cost the cost in the amount of antibody you need for a cut and run experiment is way lower than for chipseq for example right? for example yeah i'm, I'm glad you um point this out uh, precisely so we say in the iceberg in the iceberg paper we say you know we don't expect that everyone does 25 replicates on the other hand one shouldn't think of this as an impossible feat because it's it's 25 replicates of Cateran. I don't. I, I hope I'm not saying something that is awfully wrong, but I don't believe so. It's it's kind of less expensive that than an individual single cell sequencing experiment 
with the current technology that uses the appropriate controls and the appropriate number of replicates, which are great technologies and they are expensive. The cost will drop in the future, of course, but nowadays it would cost my lab less to do an iceberg of the next transcription factor than a single cell sequencing experiment, which we do. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to. So we do, and we love the single cell uh, sequencing technologies. But to go back to your question, I think it's, so we, that's why we have figure four in the paper, because there is an entire, there is a world out there of people who are packaging their story at, with two or three replicates. And if I, if I now to re review an article for a scientific journal, I wouldn't say do 25 replicates. But I would I would urge um, the scientists at least to try to address the point of what is their fraction of discovery. How can they estimate uh, how much of the of their own iceberg are they detecting? I think it's very important. I mean, all of us won't discover genuinely good thing. We don't. No one of us claims we discovered the entire functioning of the universe. I discovered that this transcription factor regulate gene X and maybe gene Y, and this has these consequences. And then we don't know uh, all the reality, and that's okay. And the iceberg could be really used as a tool to have an estimate of how certain am I about my discovery and likely how much am I losing it. And that's okay. I think it's entirely fine. And if I may add as a, as a last thing, an important piece of data is that when you target chromatin marks, which is also an important part of the, um, the, the efforts from the community, like there are several chromatin marks and they define how the genome is used. Even when you do one replicate, this does pretty well in identifying the iceberg. And we have seen that across 10 replicates, the concordance, the overlap of those replicates, it's very high and most, uh, of the peaks that we identified does, does occur in all of the 10 replicates. And this is spectacularly showing us that depending on the factor, you really have a different outcome and expectation in terms of how many times you have to do the experiment to be satisfied with your discovery rate. So just just as a small question to add, um, when you say replicate, this is a true biological replicate, right? So you start with a, a separate biological entity at the beginning, right? So you're not talk talking about like some splitting up in between and doing some kind of technical uh, replicate, but it's a true biological replicate then. Um, e I don't know. Um, I don't know, but in, in the lab, we we think thought of this very often this is a discussion that is always open but never closed because we, we don't know how to address this point um, what is a technical replicate what is a biological replicate when for example you are assessing uh, the you are doing a cataran experiment um, in a cell culture um, and the Of course, there are reasonable opinions on that, but how we addressed the iceberg problem was from a technical perspective. We know that when we, because we wanted to be even more precise and not, not give the chance that biolo other biological factors, which have to do with the temperature outside, that now it's summer, is changing and the cells inside our lab grow more. Um, might influence this. So what we did, we culture big amount of cells and we split them in, actually we did this in two rounds and then we have, we split them in 10 or 15 samples as such that we can have 10 or 15 of what we refer to technical replicates. And then two weeks later, we have done again other 15 and those are 15 technical replicates. One could think that the two experiments are too big biological variations, biological replicates. On the other hand, we, so Anna did look at, um, with the, you know, with the classical, for example, principal component analysis that you cannot really distinguish oh. the two groups. Oh, that's a good so information. The, yeah, this was very important. And, but yet, even when you do technical, the experiment should be exactly the same, but they are not. 
and we don't know why. And if you look at figure two, then what we show there with a good dose of pride is <laughs> is all the twenty five replicates. They all look. They all show that they worked spectacularly well because we have very high signal and very low background in the region where we know there should be signal. And they all look like each other. But yeah. if you zoom in, you see that there are differences in peak size also in this region. Why this happens? That's the problem we try to address. So is this what you are working on right like like currently and for maybe the next five years that you're trying to address the technical and biological variability in those experiments? Um yes, in part. Not only, not only. So we started off. Uh, I, as a scientist, and uh, my lab as as a whole, we started off to address biological questions, not really technical questions. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I'm also kind of a little bit. I'm I'm happy uh, with hindsight that we are also dealing with technology and statistical and perhaps a little bit philosophical issues on how to deal with. Um, signal detection theory in molecular biology and genomics. So I'm, I'm, I'm uh, admittedly um, proud of people in my lab who really uh, um, can do that. Uh, but we started off with the bio genuinely biological, genuine biological question, which I think it's what we are going to focus on uh, in the future. In particular, for example, we are going to use those tools to address the activity of beta catenin and other factors, which uh, um, for many years have been shown to operate in somehow a universal manner and conserved across the species, model organisms, and, uh, and, and, and across cell types. But if you look at in details, when we apply like tissue specific, tissue specifically those technologies, we look at proteins that like beta-catenin act in a very different way. And we try, we are trying to understand first how And then why? Mm -hmm. And this is what we are going to focus a lot in the future. But another thing that I learned in my still short career uh, is that what I think is going to happen, it's not going to happen. And some <laughs> other things will happen, like such as iceberg. I never anticipated that we would focus our mm -hmm. efforts on such an, uh, an enterprise. So, Claudia, this is now officially the longest podcast episode we did, and we have like 106 now. <laughs> so uh, thank you very much Hi. for your time and for being on the show. I'm, I'm very uh, grateful for your invitation and I apologize. I become very talkative. I realize uh, when it's about it's science. It's great. It was, it, was, it was great information that you shared. But thank you very much. I'm very happy that uh, we did this. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.